Thank you, Chancel Choir, and thanks to the Joy Bells and the Inspirations. I know they've uh, left, but don't speak ill of them. They were here at 8.30 and stayed for the whole service, so uh, I appreciate their music so much this morning. Thank you, Adam, for your gratitude testimony and for your leadership in this church. We appreciate you and your family, and thank you, Addie, for the call to worship. And thank you all for being here. It's good to see you. It's good to be together on this uh, beautiful Sunday in November as we continue on this stewardship journey. This also is a holiday weekend. Tomorrow is Veterans Day. And I'd like for us to take just a moment and ask, as you are able, our veterans to stand this morning and let us express our appreciation to you. Would you... Take a moment and stand, please, so we can see who you are. Thank you so much for all that you've done for all of us, making it possible for us to be here this day. We continue on the stewardship journey that we started last week. This is number two in the series, actually of three, but we'll probably make it a little bit of a four Sunday thing because the four Sunday November is Thanksgiving Sunday. And what better way to wrap up a stewardship emphasis than to focus on gratitude last week. And we're basing a lot of our work and there's a class that Mark Pass and David Knuckles and I are leading on Sunday mornings at 940 to 1040 and it's not too late to join we have two more sessions so that class and this whole emphasis comes from Adam Hamilton's book enough simplicity and generosity is part of the subtitle and if you'd like a copy of that book for your own personal devotional use I do have some extra ones please let me know but we are looking at that and a lot of this emphasis begins with our personal lives and our personal financial situations because that's where stewardship begins. And sometimes giving in the church and even beyond is impacted or held back because we've not faced the situations in our own lives. So we're, we're looking at those things. Last week we talked about when dreams become nightmares and used a couple of stories, Luke chapter 12, where Jesus told about the guy who had so much stuff he had to tear down his barns and build bigger barns just so he'd have somewhere to put all of it. And... Um, you think about it, it's hard for me not to think about all these storage facilities all over creation, about building bigger barns. And then we looked into Ecclesiastes and a guy named Koheleth. We nicknamed him Colby. It's a little easier for me to use that name. But he spent all of his life chasing the wind. Said that everything was vanity because he was looking for joy and meaning and purpose in life in all the wrong places. Today we're going to look at, for a little while, cultivating contentment. Cultivating contentment. And then next week, defined by generosity. It is our Pledge Sunday. I hope you're praying about that. I hope you're talking about it at home. I hope you're seeking God's direction as to what we can do to keep this church strong. Three passages of scripture, two of them are very brief. I want us to look again at the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. 
Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had spent in doing it, and again all was vanity, and a chasing after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Words of despondency. And then from Hebrews chapter 13, I want to read verses 5 and 6. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can anyone do to me? And then from Second, First Timothy chapter 6, beginning with verse 2b. And this is our primary lesson for today. 1 Timothy 6, beginning with the second part of verse 2. Teach and urge these duties. Whoever teaches otherwise and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that is in accordance with godliness is conceited, understanding nothing, and has a morbid craving for controversy and for disputes about words. From these come envy, dissension, slander, base suspicions, wrangling among those who are depraved in mind and bereft of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Of course there is great gain in godliness combined with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world so that we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. This is the word of God for the people of God. Does it pay to be a Christian? Is godliness profitable? One of the most common notions, or sometimes I might say superstitions that parades as Christianity, is that godliness is very simply a means of gain. Honesty, industry, sobriety, the three virtues that used to be framed and decorate the walls of many parlors in New England in an earlier day, undoubtedly to aid the person who wants to get ahead in this world. And there are some Christians who imagine their prosperity is always evidence of their righteousness. And there is a kind of teaching which encourages people to cultivate certain characteristics so that God might bless them and they might become wealthy. The fact is that many a person is not successful in a worldly sense, even if they hang on to those principles that are so important to them. And there are people who seem to ignore all of those important principles and somehow end up prospering and things go well for them and drives us crazy, but it happens over and over again. People who have a disregard for ethical principles, but they still seem to do so well. Right now, anyway. Three important questions that can be applied to all wealth are how is it acquired? How is it used? 
And to whom does the owner give account? Himself or herself? Are we held accountable in the use of what we have? The question at issue here addressed by the scripture lessons is that we go beyond the superficial identification of godliness and gain, goodness and wealth. Paul is looking into the motives of all of these things, of our wealth and of our abundance. And if he had in mind the attitude of certain religious teachers, it was that their fees, their compensation, those kind of things were higher up on their priority list than sharing the truth and making a difference in the lives of people. John chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. Jesus is talking about the difference between a shepherd and a hireling. And he says a lot in John 10 about shepherds. And he identifies himself as the good shepherd, and certainly none of us would question that. But he says, he who is a hireling, he who is a hireling and not a shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hireling and he cares nothing for the sheep. But the point of the passage for today from 1 Timothy has an even wider implication than this. There are certain movements in the Christian church which hold out material prosperity as the right reward for worshiping and studying the scriptures and maintaining our spiritual disciplines. And I believe this distorts the Christian faith. Maybe this is the place or not the place to mention the prosperity gospel that I have a great deal of difficulty with. But it's very popular in in some traditions and in some places. It's trying to use God, I think, for our selfish purposes instead of offering ourselves to be used for God's purposes in this world. Jesus never said, seek you first all of these things and then the kingdom of God will be added unto you. We live that way sometimes. That's backwards, isn't it? Obviously, this sort of wisdom is at odds with scriptural Christianity. But to ask, does it pay to be a Christian is not an inappropriate question. And God and money are not unrelated topics as much as we would like to separate them sometimes. Billy Graham once said, tell me what you think about money and I can tell you what you think about God. For these two are closely related. And a person's heart is closer to his or her wallet than anything else. In response to the question, does it pay to be a Christian? Verse 6 of our text, one of the modern translations puts it like this. Of course, religion does yield high dividends, but only to the one whose resources are within, within their hearts. The text paints a picture of life that puts wealth on the edge rather than at the center of things that sees money as valuable, but not the ultimate value, as a worthwhile means to an end, but not an end in itself. And then someone said to try this. I haven't tried it yet. I may may do it today. Maybe you've tried this. Hold a penny at arm's length, and it will appear as a dot against the sun. Hold a penny right up on your eye, and it will block out the sun. In our passage, life is viewed holding the penny at a distance, 
In the first part of the passage, riches and wealth are viewed from this radically different perspective. And it is different, isn't it, than most of what we are taught in, in our society, in our culture, and have been across the years. The word for godliness is often translated as piety, better translated in some places as religion, and religion in a good sense of the word. For some of us, the word godliness has negative connotations. We might hear someone being described as a godly person, and what comes to mind right off? Well, they are some kind of humorless, stick-in-the-mud, no-fun-to-be-around kind of somebody. It's not true, is it? True godliness suggests a form of life whose ultimate quest is for God and for, for the things of God in this world. Earlier in the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 4, verse 8, train yourself in godliness, for while bodily training is of some value and some worth, Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Coupled with godliness in our text is contentment. It's the capacity to be satisfied with what is ours rather than being driven to possess what is not ours. Paul wrote in Philippians 4.11, Not that I complain of woe, for I have learned in whatever state I am in, whatever condition I am in, to be content. And in Hebrews 13, 5, the writer says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For God has said, I will never fail you or forsake you. Isaac Bickerstaff was writing in love in a village, and he said, But if I'm content with a little, enough is as good as a feast. And another author writes, when we have not what we like, we need to like what we have. Another scholar claims that contentment comes from an inward attitude toward life. In the third part of Henry VI, and I stumbled across this information, I am no Shakespeare scholar, but in the third part of Henry VI, Shakespeare draws a picture of the king wandering in the country in places unknown. And he meets two gamekeepers and he tells them that he is a king. And one of them asked, but if there be a king, where's thy crown? And the king gives a great answer. He says, my crown is in my heart, not on my head, not decked with diamonds and Indian stones, nor to be seen. My crown is called content, a crown that is seldom enjoyed by kings. Long ago, the Greek philosopher Epicurus said of himself, to whom little is not enough, nothing is enough. Give me a barley cake and a glass of water, and I'm ready to rival Zeus for happiness. And when someone asked him, what is the secret of happiness? He said, add not to one's possessions, but take away from one's desires. How's it going with us? Are we seeking the things of God, honestly, with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength? Are we content with family, friends, food, and shelter, the basic and simple necessities of life? Or are we always thinking a little more money, a few more things, and then I'll be happy and content? And it's like chasing the wind, isn't it? Just always, just beyond our grasp. Godliness and contentment, we're told, are great gain. And then the second thing of which our text cautions us is that all the trappings... All the extras of this life, all the wonderful things that we rave about and brag about and work for, pale in comparison to the miracles of birth and death. We neither enter life 
nor leave this life with any assets. You may have heard this whole story about two guys who met on the street on a Monday morning. It was a small town. And uh, one of them says, did you hear that Bill Johnson died last night? Bill Johnson was a wealthy, influential guy in this small town. And the second guy said, no, I hadn't heard that. How much money did he leave? (laughs) And the first guy said, all of it. Verse 7 of the passage reads like this, For we brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out. In other words, have we ever seen an armored car or a U-Haul truck following a hearse to the cemetery? And you've heard that question before. Looking back to the Old Testament, there are several passages that reinforce our text, our story for today. In Job 121, we overhear Job saying, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Ecclesiastes 5.15, the preacher exclaims, As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil, which he may carry away in his hand. And then Genesis 3.19, and this is where we get that phrase that we use at Ash Wednesday so often, that phrase that really confronts who we are and what it's all about. The writer of Genesis is pretty blunt. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. You are dust, and unto dust you shall return. An old Spanish proverb states that there are no pockets in a shroud. Riches and possessions are finally to be viewed as decorations along the way. The only real necessities, I think, if we look at this passage closely, food and clothing, and the overall tone of our text implies that we need little of both. And then the third thing of which we are warned here is that riches are seductive. In verse 9, we're told to be careful not to fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and hurtful desires that plunge folks into ruin and destruction. Riches like the thorns in the parable of the sower in uh, Matthew 13, I believe it is, can suffocate us. What begins as the innocent desire to make a fair profit, and that's understandable and I don't think the writer is speaking against that, but it can become an obsession to own things. And before longer, we no longer own things, but things own us. And we end up like the rich fool that Jesus described in Luke chapter 12. Built all these fine, bigger barns, took his ease. He was ready to wine, shine, dine, and recline, and he died that night. Mercy. Francis Peabody, in one of his Harvard Chapel addresses told a story, told one of Ruskin's stories about a man who tried to swim some from, to safety from a sinking ship. And he put this belt around him with all of his money on it, 200 pounds of gold. And obviously, he did not reach the shore. And he drowned. And Ruskin wonders, as he was going down, did he ask the question, have I the gold? Or does the gold have me? Riches are seductive. Stuff is seductive. Desires that were once wise and constructive become senseless and harmful. What begins as a modest desire can turn into ruin and destruction. 
the fourth and final thing of which our text teaches us is this unquenched desire for money is the root of every form of evil. For the love of money is the root of all evil, verse 10 says. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and their hearts have been pierced with many pains. We hear that saying a lot. We use that. People misquote it or they half quote it. Money is the root of all evil. It's the love of money. We, most of us, most of you know that. Gene Tucker, who taught Old Testament at the Candler School of Theology for several, several years, wrote that the love of money is the root, the mother, and the hometown of all evils. He says that greed establishes a network with other forms of vice. For this reason, it's seen as an enemy of faith, and it leaves a trail of tears. Jesus said, preaching the Sermon on the Mount, no one can serve two masters. For either you'll hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The love of money. What greater lover of money than the man described in one of Jesus' parables? Let's go to Luke's gospel now for just a minute, chapter 16. And you know this story too. Most of you know it. Tradition has named this wealthy guy Dives, or some say Dives. He wore the finest clothes. He dined on mass quantities of the finest foods available. Had everything you could ever imagine. His greed teamed up with his selfishness and his hard-heartedness and his laziness and his narrow-mindedness and his nearsightedness. Just all that stuff got together. And he ignored a guy named Lazarus. Lazarus is a beggar who lay at his gate day after day begging. And the scripture adds a detail, sort of a gross detail to this, that the dogs of the city came around and licked the open sores on Lazarus. And Lazarus hoped day after day, maybe a scrap off the table. The beggar died and was carried by angels to have his soul rocked in the bosom of Abraham. And I love the joy bells playing that for us. It just fit right in. And it's amazing how that works sometimes. Dives the rich man died and wound up in torment and his road to destruction was paved with the love of money it's a hard story imagine with me if you will an old old man he's been retired about 30 years and he lives in a small house on the edge of town a three room house most folks would be hard pressed to call it adequate a house furnished with only the necessities He's dying, and he knows it. Everybody, every day, since he became a Christian nearly 60 years ago, he has read and meditated on the Scriptures. He has prayed for himself and for folks he doesn't even know. He has devoted his life to the things of God, to the needs of others. His faith remains vital, even though the rest of him is in decline. Looking around his partially furnished sack, you would be hard-pressed or you might be tempted to ask him, what have you gained by living? Look around you. What have you gained by living? And he would probably be inclined to say, everything, everything that matters, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. 
Amen.